Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or check out slutsandscholars.com. Sluts and Scholars now belongs to a sex podcast collective called Pleasure Podcasts with a bunch of awesome sex-themed shows that you might enjoy. Check out our network at Pleasure Podcasts on Instagram and Facebook and Pleasure Pods on Twitter, or go to pleasurepodcast.com. Here's a teaser for one of the other shows. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm Charlotte. And we are the Pleasure Mechanics. Join us for Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics, a weekly podcast that brings you explicit yet soulful conversations about every facet of human sexuality. As certified sex educators, we've studied sexuality from all angles, from the hallowed halls of academia to the sweaty sanctuary of sex parties. We know that a fabulous sex life is possible, that beyond the shame, fear, and confusion, there is joy, belonging, and pleasure. An amazing sex life is possible, but not always simple. Join us to create a fulfilling sex life on your own terms. Visit us at pleasuremechanics.com or search Speaking of Sex wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Simone. And I'm Nicoletta. And this week, we welcome Liz Goldwyn. She is a writer, filmmaker, and artist living and working in Los Angeles. She is the writer and director of the HBO documentary Pretty Things and the author of the nonfiction book Pretty Things, The Last Generation of American Burlesque Queens. She also wrote the novel Sporting Guide, which is set in the world of prostitution and vice in Los Angeles. She's lectured on the history of prostitution at academic institutions and museums, including the Hammer Museum, Huntington Library, USC, and UCLA. Her first job, which is really cool, was at Planned Parenthood in Los Angeles when she was 13 years old, and she worked in their Santa Monica Clinic and Media Library. She continued working with the organization while in college in New York. In 2015, Goldwyn began mentoring girls at New Village Charter High School in Los Angeles, a public school for girls where 45% of students are pregnant or teenage mothers. Goldwyn's new educational digital platform, The Sex Ed, explores sex health and consciousness in the digital age. Most recently, they hosted an awesome event at the Hammer Museum featuring Dita Von Teese and Nina Hartley. Welcome! Welcome! Thank you for having me. I love the title of your show because I would say my catchphrase when anyone asks me to describe my my favorite fashion look is sexy academic. So yes. That's that I actually have that. Sluts and scholars. I, I literally have that highlighted on our page of questions for you. At the bottom, I have a quote from you where you're saying, I'm a sexy academic deconstructionist. And, I, and then it says, equals slutty scholar. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I was so bummed know- we didn't get to go to the event at the Hammer Museum with Dita and Nina. Yeah, but whatever. We've interviewed them both already. So um, <laughs> And you can watch... Watch the talk. It's uh, yes. We have a video of it on our site on thesexed.com, yeah. so you can watch it right there. Actually, we did watch it, and I really loved, we both really loved the first question that you had for both of them. So we're going to flip it back right on you and ask you, what was your first sex ed experience? So... I was the kind of kid who was just always curious about sex from an early age and asked questions that maybe most young children don't ask their parents. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe you guys asked your parents yeah, questions. Like, <laughs> we were those know, kids, is, too. 
Yeah. What's a sex change? Um, what's a prostitute? What is a madam? I think I was just always seeking this information out. I have four brothers, mm-hmm. um, who are some of whom are half brothers and older than me, and I have a younger brother that's two years younger. So, you know, there was porn around. My dad was really into Playboy magazine. Um, so he had all those magazines around. For the art- mom- for the articles. <laughs> Not for the article. For the no, tits. He was, he, for the tits. We don't have to pretend shit. I know. I'm just kidding. I, actually, I got in trouble for stealing or borrowing um, from his manicurist, this little old lady, um, the uh, the issue of Playboy with Madonna in it. Um, because I was obsessed with Madonna. I was, you know, probably like seven or eight. And she said I wasn't supposed to be looking at pictures of naked women, which I, I'd never understood. Why? why? Because it, you also uh, why I shouldn't are a woman. At, exactly. I was, a, I was a girl. I was going to, you know, grow up to have a bush and bigger boobs one day. One day. Um, one day. So, you know, I just think and my mother um, was on the board of Planned Parenthood. She's super feminist. The first books she gave me were Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique, and Colette. So I kind of that had both sides. That was the first book your mom gave <laughs> Child, you? Childhood sleep like, time stories. Like, I think yeah, I got, like, no, Frog I mean, and Toad after, go on an adventure. Yeah, no, obvious, obviously after, like, Goodnight, Mr. Moon. Yeah. And <laughs> You know, she was just very, you know, That's she like was funny super political about about feminism and, and the politics of sexuality, whereas my father was much more into, you know, eroticism. Mm-hmm. So I think because I had both these role models as parents, I just had this natural curiosity and no one was answering my questions. So I would just steal their books or, you know, like gave me the, me and my brother, those books, where do I, oh, you know, what, where do yeah. I come from and mm-hmm. what's happening to me? I remember and reading everything you want to know about sex, but are afraid to ask your parents. My parents gave totally. me that one. Well, they didn't give it to me. They well, gave it to my I, older sister for her 10th birthday, and I was seven and still read it. <laughs> all right. And you read like, you know, Judy Bloom oh and my yes. uh, Laura Palmer's Diary. Um, was like an early erotic. Oh, <laughs> wait, like of you know, Twin from, Peaks? Uh huh, <gasps> of Twin Peaks. Uh, we just I've never read that. I've never read this, oh. and I'm so excited to read it now. Oh, yeah, we love we love yeah. Twin Peaks a lot. We went on a road trip uh, last week to Northern Wa- to, to Washington State, and I didn't tell Nicoletta where we were going, and I took her to Laura Palmer's house, and she freaked the fuck out. It was great. Well, that's on my to read list. That's amazing. Yeah. So basically, I think you, you know, were calling information inter- from books that were around because nobody uh, was answering your questions. I would ask my mom things, but I also thought it was strange that she was so, um, you know, pro Planned Parenthood, but still couldn't. And not not to any, you know, not to place blame on her at all. I just think this is what's going on with parents because mm-hmm. I was very uncomfortable to talk to their children about sexuality. Yeah, and parents <laughs> haven't learned to and, do it. Yeah, and even if you're if you're quite open, like I have a lot of parents say to me, "Well, you know, when do we start talking to them about?" I mean, animals in the wild don't make a big deal of genitals, but for some reason, American parents use these silly names. Yeah, yeah. Um, instead of just making it, so it immediately makes it a shameful right thing. It's so shameful you, you know, can't like, even you say can't, the word for it. Mm-hmm. You can't even use the word for it. Um, so I thought I always thought that was strange. And I guess like from an early age, I would seek out sex ed on my own. 
Yeah, I've heard I've heard like young people or parents call their like young kids genitals like cucaracha, like for vagina. Uh-huh. That means cockroach. Wee wee wawa. Yeah, wee wee pee pee. Oh my god. In my family we always said vagina. In fact, there's this funny family story where my sister found out what her vagina was when she was like maybe four or five. And like the next day she shows up to breakfast and she's naked. She goes, Morning, Gina. <laughs> so that's like well, a, you had a very progressive so family. So that's you and our family. Also, when we go over speed bumps, um, because one time my sister said this, or maybe it was me, but I think it was my sister. When you go over speed bumps, my sister said, that gave me a funny feeling in my vagina. So <laughs> whenever whenever we're in a car, in the car as a fam, like one of us will say that, and it's the best when it's my little brother <laughs> or my dad, because they will also say, that gave me a funny feeling in my vagina. Do you feel like your mom was more like, old wave feminist like it sounds like she supported like reproductive rights and things like that but maybe wasn't as open about um a different kind of like open sexuality oh definitely and also let's remember that like of her generation of first wave feminists um you know they were also raised they didn't have that choice kind of Mm -hmm. they had you know they had to like politicize the issue and they couldn't embrace their sexuality necessarily at the same time Mm -hmm. and they were also I mean she grew up in the 1950s where you didn't talk about things like rape and sexual assault and molestation so there's like you know just all that inherent trauma of that generation as well right um when I started getting into my burlesque research, um, when I was like 17, she had a real problem with it. Um, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people did, I would say, um, because I think the general consensus was how can you be a feminist and still embrace and explore the power of your femininity, the power of your eroticism. Yeah, I mean, things are different now. I'm talking about this was like, 1996, 97. Um, so it was, you know, neo movement was like just burgeoning. It was sort of pre suicide girls hitting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so you definitely had this underground movement, but the cultural mainstream was like still, you know, about like close to a decade away from exploring these ideas there was no pussycat dolls so what um, was it what was your experience like working at Planned Parenthood then versus well, like Planned Parenthood how it is now I was younger yeah Planned Parenthood I was 13 yeah what were you doing um, as a 13 year old for them um I was answering phones in the clinic I was peer educating I also peer I was an AIDS peer educator in in high school and then I helped organize their media library which was like a free resource where people could come in and check out literature or videos at that time That's um, awesome. And what there kind was of actually stuff a lot people of, checking out. I know I want to know what videos you saw. <laughs> Well, you know, what was interesting is there were a lot of single dads that would come in and because I was like manning the desk, they would sort of ask me how to talk to their daughters my age about sex, which was so weird to be kind of considered an adult in that situation, advising. Or the expert, yeah. Yeah, a middle-aged man. Um, But because I was just this research nerd, I I don't think I, I I had like an objective lens on it. I wasn't, you know, it was, I was like, Oh, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me like research it and get right back to you. And I became the de facto person for my peers as well. 
Um, oh my gosh, we were so similar. Like I grew up when when I was growing up, chat rooms were like a really big thing, and you'd have like cyber sex, and people <laughs> would be chatting, and and you'd be chatting with someone, and they would say something you didn't know, and I people knew me as like this person who would either somehow find out or just like ask my parents directly. And I remember distinctly this one girl in elementary elementary school came up to me and she was like, can you please find out what wet pussy means? Because I had no idea. And I, she was, no, she asked me if I knew what wet pussy meant and I didn't. This was second or third grade. I had no idea what it meant. And I distinctly remember saying, don't worry, I'll go ask my parents. I came home from school that day I went to my, I think my mom and dad were like in the dining room together. I went in and I said, um, so what does wet pussy mean? And my parents. <laughs> I love that you felt comfortable to ask them that. I totally felt It says a lot about how they raised you. And yeah. I, I will never forget this. My dad like looked at me kind of like and almost rolled his eyes and he was like, as if you don't know. <laughs> so they didn't tell you? No, I was like, no, I really don't. And they thought that I was like trying to elicit some kind of like weird thing from them. And they totally assumed that I already knew what it meant. <laughs> and I had no idea. And then I think they kind of explained it. But I just remember them assuming that I already knew. <laughs> do you, I mean, I know it was a bit ago when you worked there, but do you remember like some of the main questions or was it just like, how do I talk to my kids about sex? It was a lot of how do I talk to my kids about sex? And then among like my friends, it was a lot of stuff about STDs, blowjobs, getting on the pill, condoms. I remember at that time, like, you know, kids, sometimes kids would get, my friends would get drug tested for marijuana. And the big recommend for urinary tract infection, which I would always give at that time, was cranberry juice, which had the byproduct of also clearing your urine of THC. Oh, <laughs> so kill two birds with one stone. Really, that was a really popular tip. But I was also sometimes, you know, getting in trouble for imparting information to kids as well. Mm. Or, you know, I think because of my dad as my dad to um, being a filmmaker and working with, um, he actually worked with David Lynch who directed Twin Peaks. They made a movie called um, Wild at Heart. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, we love that. Which was pretty sexually explicit. Yes. And, um, he took me and a girlfriend from school when we were nine, one day after school to see a rough cut of that with the editor and David Lynch and him. And we walked out. I don't know why he thought it was appropriate because it didn't even have an X rating at the time. And we walked out and this girl, my school friend said, your father's a porn pornographer. And then I, she was never allowed to play with me again. Oh. So I, think I, got, I got a reputation pretty early for, you know, being the adult themed subject matter kid. Did it did it affect you in other ways socially as a child and a teenager and as a young woman like your hyper comfortability and and like strong knowledge in the space? Like did people I think, think you were a slut because you knew about this yeah, stuff? Uh, yeah, uh-huh. I think still uh, 100%. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, just because you're you know, interested in a subject and want to know everything about it doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing every single thing that I can talk to you about. Mm -hmm. Or, um, and I, and I do think that you get that assumption a lot, especially from straight men. Yeah, of course. Um, I you find, must be so kinky because you know about all the kinks of the world. Mm -hmm. And I have my boundaries and things I'll try and don't want to try, but 
I want to at least know what something is about before I categorically say no to it. For sure. I mean, it sounds like your dad used sexuality and things, obviously, in his films, but I wonder if you've gotten pushback from your family for including sex and sexuality in your art and work. It took my mom a long time to understand um, the burlesque, you know, the burlesque work. I think it took her a long time to understand, like, my perspective on on these women as being performance artists and being, and in general, I've always been interested in exploring the history of women and people that have been forgotten because of what they did to get by in a lot of cases, particularly when it comes to sex work mm-hmm. um, and sort of shedding light on these stories of, of people whose, whose lives have been lost to history because we celebrate the achievements of dead white men primarily. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's and we should celebrate the achievements of dead, of dead sex workers. I mean, but we, but we should like, yeah. like, like, I don't know if you know, sarcastic. like, I don't know if you know who Lou Graham is, but Lou Graham, I don't, maybe you do uh, Liz, but Lou Graham was a madam in Seattle at the turn of the, of the, tw- like into the 20th century. No, I'm not familiar. And she was a huge madam, uh, was like one of the wealthiest people in all of Seattle, had no kids, and donated more money to creating Seattle's educational system for its children than any other, than all other prominent families in Seattle combined. And she does does not have a fucking statue or a street name. Well, the, I mean, that's, was a lot of the premise of my last book, Sporting Guide, was the way in which much of America was settled was and founded on that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, do you know the expression worth your weight in gold? Do you know where it comes from? No, no but I can't wait to find us. out. So when, you know, when the gold rush was going on, when mining camps were being settled. Um, so the first thing before there was, you know, a bank or a general store, there would literally Always be a brothel. The, the men, well, not even a brothel at the, you know, it very, even before there was an established brothel, there'd be like kind of a makeshift saloon and, and then the women would come. So yes, the prostitutes would come and there'd be a double-sided scale on the bar, which was maybe like a wooden plank across some slabs. And the woman would stand on that double-sided scale on one side and the miners would reach into their pocket and put the gold nuggets on the other side of the scale. And when that was even, the scale was even, that was the price for the night. Hence, worth your weight in gold. And a lot of the women- you know, it would behoove them to be heavier. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they make more money. fucking expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I would also be expensive and also put rocks in my pockets. (laughs) Or in your pussy. In my pussy. I put rocks in any, any, any hole. My pussy, my mouth, anywhere. Just fill it with rocks. What got you interested in the sex work? That I was really, so going back to my family, I think I told my family very young that I wanted to be a madam. Um, I saw this made for TV movie called Mayflower Madam. Mayflower (laughs) Madam. Is that like like on Lifetime? Starring Candace Bergen as a real life madam called Sydney Biddle Barrows. I'm writing Um, this down. Mayflower Madam. Yeah. It's such, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. I was probably like nine when it came out. And you were like, that looks fun. And I could do that. I was like, what's that job? That sounds really interesting. Um, and I just got fascinated. And I think because I always had this curiosity about women who lived outside of what the culture deemed acceptable. I was always reading biographies of, yeah. you know, courtesans of the Italian Renaissance and, mm-hmm. you know, 
Lady Jane Digby, who left her husband and children in like the 1820s and went off into the Bedouin desert. And, so uh, you know, it's just I kind dressed of up interested as Madame in... Dubarry once for History Day. Oh, yeah. Cool. For listeners who don't know, who is Madame Dubarry? She was Louis XIV's courtesan. She's the, wait, 14th? Yeah, 14th. Right? Am I? I feel like I'm not. I have an academic in my midst. So, what do you what do you say? So, so a lot of the a lot of the women um, in my first book, in Pretty Things, which is about the history of burlesque, I go into the madams of La Belle Epoque in Paris. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of the stars of the Folie, Folies Bergère were also, you know, high priced courtesans to right. crowned heads of Europe, and they had things like corsets made of diamonds from Cartier. Yeah. So. That's where it came from. Is just this, these this interest in these women that had this alternative economic power at a time when I mean, think about what our choices would be if we were born in another century. In terms we're, of we're like kind of, being having ownership over ourselves and our bodies and well, what we, we wanted could to devote do, devote ourselves to God. Yeah, in one way or another, you could serve a man. Um, <laughs> you could be a property of a man. Yeah, um, you know. Or you could, you know, use your wares selling. Either way, you were defined by your sex. Right. That's so amazing. I like, I wonder where you got the interest for looking at the history of it. I'm also really curious um, from what you know, like what is one forgotten woman that you just wish everybody remembered? Well, one of the women I wrote about in in Sporting Guide, they're based on real real people. Um, is this woman Cora Phillips, who was who was a madam in L.A. in the 1890s, and I actually went to her grave, which is in Los Angeles. And Ooh, um, where is it? It's in the Los Angeles uh, Angelina Cemetery near USC. Oh, um, interesting. And there's a grave rubbing I did at her gravesite in the book. Um, so cool. So it was just. You know, people people like her um, or Sally Stanford, who was the mayor of San Francisco, but also a very powerful madam in her day. There's lot. There's lots of there's lots of them. That's, That's amazing. So cool. It is fucked up how we mostly only know about dead white men. I mean, one of the you mentioned in the at the outset in my bio that I I work with a school called New Village in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and one of my favorite field trips I organized it for them was taking them to the rare book collection at UCLA <gasps> to see their punk archive, which was <gasps> That's so awesome. cool. Because I wanted them to see literally that every story, every voice is worthy of collecting. You know, it does not matter. Like, I think we need to see those things reflected back to us. We need to know that our experiences are valid. And worthy of archival. Right, and that the people who write the history books aren't always determining what's really happened in our culture and our society. Like, there's there's always this underbelly culture that really shaped things. But not even underbelly. I think even calling it an underbelly is, is, is almost problematic, right? Like That's true. It's not... Like we can say this is the underbelly. That's why, we but didn't it's know really about common. It. it just becomes or the underbelly. There is systemic erasure yes. of sex workers and women. You're right, totally. Yeah, exactly. I am really curious to hear more about your work with New Village. Is that what it's called? It's called New Village, and I actually to bring it back to David Lynch again. Um, I, I wrote, find we love David Lynch. I wrote David Lynch yeah, a letter the day before I moved with, to LA. You did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, 
I wrote him a letter the day before I moved to LA. I like hand wrote it in fountain pen and I sent it in a purple envelope from Paris because I know how much he likes France. And he never <laughs> answered. He never answered me. So maybe you can ask him why, Liz. <laughs> um, you know, I meditate. Um, oh, cool. Every day. Do you do TM? It's, I do. I, I, I do have a mantra and I, I learned TM, but I don't necessarily always use it when I meditate. I just think having a meditation practice is really, is really helpful. Um, and it's, free to meditate. So like for me, libraries and meditation are accessible to everyone. Um, it's true. And I love I, libraries. So any, yeah. So David um, has a program, um, the David Lynch Foundation, where he actually runs meditation programs in schools across America. And he also runs meditation programs for um, vet, vet, you know, veterans of war who are suffering from PTSD for homeless people mm -hmm. and for children of the night. So oh, he and I were yeah, talking. I'm familiar with that group. Yeah. So he and I were talking about, um, about meditation and be, me being interested in, you know, some of these communities and the ways in which meditation can help, can really help overcome trauma. And he told me about new village where he ran, where they ran, ran a meditation program. And I went to the school and started meditating with the girls and they meditate twice a day as part of their curriculum That's um, awesome. in the beginning of the day. And then after lunch. Um, and I just, loved it. I just loved it. Especially with girls who are coming from a lot of different circumstances where just closing your eyes in a room is really scary. Yeah. Um, and see what strength and power they have was, I mean, it gave me a lot of strength and power. And then just organically, they started asking me to mentor them and they knew that I was, uh, and David knew as well that I was about to publish this book on prostitution and some of the girls had experience with that. So they were really into it and wanted to tell me their stories. And it just, you know, it was a very mutually, it is a very mutually um, beneficial relationship. How has meditation helped you in your life? Uh, so much. I think if you're in a creative field at all, just having that moment to quiet, quiet your brain and detach from, from not only in a creative world, but living in the, current political climate that we're in as mm -hmm. well. It's really easy for someone. I'm pretty sensitive and try to be engaged, but there's moments where you just like, can't believe what's happening yeah. with the Supreme court. Yeah. Like you need a black, some sort of respite yeah. with sanity. To be able to come from a place of strength to face it and do what you can to combat it in your own way. So, uh, and even in personal relationships, you know, trying to not react from a place of like ego or anger, but um, as much as possible for me, like coming from a place of diplomacy, um, I think is helpful. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't recommend it enough. And I actually tell people that they should go on UCLA's Mind Body Institute, um, which is just online and they have free guided meditations in English and Spanish and anywhere from like three minutes to 15 minutes to 20 minutes is like such a great Fine, introductory. maybe I'll try. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some great apps too for people who don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. Headspace, yeah. Evenflow. Yeah, 
Um, you mentioned a really interesting thing a few minutes ago uh, before you talked about meditation, about how you wrote this book about prostitution and then some of these young girls that you were mentoring wanted to talk to you about their experience with sex trafficking and or or whatever they define their experience to be. And that, to me, brings up a really interesting uh, contemporary issue that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, mm-hmm. which is the issue of kind of lumping together sex trafficking and sex work. Consensual sex work. And right, Fosta and Sesta. And so I was curious from, from your uh, academic perspective and also you being in the throes of this with um, just your research in general, I was curious about your perspective on this. I mean, my perspective on prostitution is that it should be decriminalized um, and that there should be, you know, proper health care and safety measures yeah, put in all place care, for emotional, for, physical for, unions, yeah, for, unions, for sex workers. It's um, a labor issue. That's what Nina says. I, 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 that's how I feel about it. And I, I know that in some circles that, that definitely draws me some ire, but I've always felt that way. I think in places like, you know, even in Nevada where it's legal in, you know, Mustang ranch, um, the problem with places like that and why I, I would tell my family that I, you know, would, want to be a madam in some alternate universe is that I wouldn't take my cut off the girls. So in a place like that, where you sign a contract, you have to stay there for a certain amount of months. You generally have to pay up to 60% per trick to the house and you have to buy your wardrobe from the house. So, you know, just in the way in which I would structure the business model, I would operate it like a private club and I would charge clients a premium to just walk through my door and then tap on extras for like shoe shoe shine, laundry, like... Right, and pressing then, your pressing your suit, <laughs> ha- like having nice meals. Why don't you um, start 20- one and achieve your goal of becoming a madam? Because that place well, sounds pretty I did great. Do I did do um, an installation in LA in 2012 that was a live, like was a brothel that was open for one night. It was a performance piece with bad <gasps> full frontal nudity, but it was my vision of what my brothel. Oh my was. god! I <gasps> wish we had been invited. I know. What did it? What did it look like? Um, there was a cast of 11. There were two men. One who was a bouncer at the door that told you Madam Goldwyn's house rules. And ah! if you disobeyed, you get kicked out. Oh my God. Like there you was- accomplished your goal pretty much. Well, keep going. Yeah, there, keep and then going. there was a male piano player and the rest were women. And, um, I mean, it was beautiful. Matt cosmetics actually, actually SA Lauder paid for it. Shockingly. Um, Wow. Really a beautiful hair and makeup and they had different themed rooms they were in and you could walk through a la like sleep no more. You just weren't allowed to touch or talk to oh, the girls. I worked with the, you couldn't, they were like, you couldn't actually hire if, them for the evening. No, 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 That would have. Yeah. I'm not about to risk, um, legal trouble (laughs) in in that no it was uh it was as if you time traveled to the 1890s to a brothel but it was after closing time so the girls are at their their repose so even if you were able to time travel you wouldn't have been allowed in a brothel after closing time to really see the girls relaxed um and then I, I know this is jumping around a little bit, but just going back to the idea of meditation and looping it in with sexuality, I personally feel that having a strong meditation practice um, has been such a great, is a great addition to one's understanding of their sexuality. Yeah, and, I had other um, questions, but now we need to know. I know, no, I definitely want to talk to you about the sex and mindfulness, but before we get to that, 
So I am curious because you, you have done all of this work about like dead sex workers and like in history and those who are forgotten. And I'm just curious from your vantage point, um, do you feel any kind of like personal imperative to support sex workers currently or is that of less interest to you? Um, and kind of one thing that we've noticed in, in talking to sex workers on our podcast is that one of the most important things is having strong non-sex worker allies. And I was just curious oh, if you identify as that. And like how how do you think that we can convince people who don't feel like they personally use sex workers um, to care about this issue? Because like sex worker, like since FASA SESTA passed, hasn't there been like a 400% increase of like street prostitution and people being attacked? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, I recently spoke about this for a writer for Art News um, about FOSTA and SESTA. I think my goal in, in this is 100% talking about these issues outside of marginalized communities to mm-hmm. the mainstream so the mainstream can understand it from a human, empathetic perspective. And I think that's why in sharing history and the stories of people's lives, you begin to understand it as not like labeling someone as a sex worker, but saying, oh, this is a single mom Mm. who has mouths to feed, who's a human being, who's had her heart broken, who, who, you know, who dreams of being an accountant, whatever it is. Um, And so they can begin to, because unfortunately you need, you do need the support of the establishment to also change laws. And that there's some people who dream of just being a sex worker and that's what they want to do. Just like you. Just like you. (laughs) How do you. That's valid too. How do you think you got these mainstream companies to support an art exhibit like that? I mean, I know maybe it's a little more blurred because it's art, so there's more flexibility, but even, you know, we and other people that work in the sex education space have found it difficult sometimes to have partnerships and get sponsors because of the sexual things or the sex worker content. So like I'm shocked that Mac was like supporting of that. Well, I actually, at the time I had been, I had designed a holiday collection for them, like a Liz Goldwyn for Mac um, holiday collection of cosmetic bags. And they, I asked instead of doing like a launch party, I asked for them to pay for this installation. Um, Good business tactic. I love that. And, How fucking and I also insidious. have, I mean, I've had a long career in the fashion world, so I have ties to, to that world. And I will tell you, it's tough. And I, I mean, I, I am trying to, you know, do what I can to change, to change minds within that, because I do think the power fashion does have a lot of power to reach, you know, a lot of consumers and, you know, get under the skin. And I do, I think that you, in order to change the game, you have to understand the game and try to change it from within. But that means I'm being allied with, again, with marginalized communities. But I will say it's tough. It's tough in this country to fund sex research. I raised the money for my first film, Pretty Things, which I sold to HBO all through grants until I sold it to them. And people did not want to fund a documentary about women, women's history, or, or anything to do with sexuality. Right. Even the museum at FIT, which is a fashion institution, they can't do a show on like Russian underwear because they get state funding. Whoa. I mean, it's so Wait, crazy how, yeah, I'm telling you, it's really like the level of conservatism 
in this country and administration. And billion dollars on abstinence-only sex ed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was mostly individual donors? Um, well, you mean for the grants I raised? Yeah. For, for, um, no, I got like a big one from New York Foundation for the Arts. I was living in New York at the time. Um, actually, Matt Cosmetics did support it. That's they're awesome. they're really they're a very sex positive company. I think that people's minds are changing a bit now. Um, I'm I have a couple of things lined up with some sort of more mainstream like luxury e-commerce companies. And I'm saying, if you want to do this deal with me, then you've got to support the sex, the sex work I'm doing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the sex field. Um, I think it's so uh, important you know, to have mainstream, powerful people like you doing that and saying that. Totally. I think it, it, it really is important for a radical shift of the paradigm. But at the same time, I'll tell you, I've been hired to do things by mainstream companies when they've specifically hired me for my point of view around eroticism and, you know, paid me really well to, let's say, write an essay on women's erotic fantasies. And then I get a, a, you know, the copy edit and they say, well, you can't use the word orgasm. Well, how the hell do you want me to talk about About women's fantasies? Without using that word. For a I lot mean, of women, just, their fantasy is literally just to orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> That's so the true. Latest, the latest content on our on the sex ed is a uh, is part one of a two-part Oh, I know. I have it bookmarked. Orgasm. I'm so excited Yeah, so it. tell us. I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about what's missing in sex education. I, I would love to hear a little bit about this new project that you're doing with the sex ed. So the sex set is focused around bringing you information and opening up the conversation around sexuality from experts who have at least 10,000 hours in their area of expertise, which can include people like um, Sunny Rogers, who's writing content for us now, who's a sex coach and sexologist and sex toy designer, to Dita Von Tees, to Nina Hartley, to um, Paul Fishbein, who founded AVN, which is Adult Video Network. We know we're to, going to their party uh, tonight. <laughs> you think yeah, you're so to, cool. Well, he sold his shares in it. But, um, yeah, so he, you know, to a Pentecostal minister who's been a sex educator since 1969. I think it's really important huh. to include a lot of diverse voices. I do think it's important to, to talk about to someone who's preaching abstinence only education. I think by including all these voices in the conversation, we need to be able to find some commonality. If we're going to change anything, we can't just categorically. That? Yeah, that sounds uh, tough. My knee jerk reaction is fuck that. So I need to know what you're doing. Well, you know what? When I worked in for Planned Parenthood when I was in art school in New York, my knee-jerk reaction to like um, pro-life protesters outside the clinic mm-hmm. where I had photography class was very, you know, combative and argumentative. And I realized, you know, after a while that it was it was a waste of my energy because I wasn't going to change their minds yeah. operating from that level. So, um For example, I just recently interviewed this woman who is a Pentecostal minister, but has been a sex educator since 1969. But teaches abstinence-only sex ed. Well, well, it's blurry because she understands from having that many years of experience with teenagers that abstinence-only education doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So even though her religion, you know, says this is this is you know there shouldn't be any sex outside of procreation or outside of marriage and homosexuality is wrong she personally believes that she doesn't want someone who um is not heteronormative to come to her church and feel 
like they don't have the love of God. So I think that it's about- So what does she tell people? Like in the sex that she does for young people, does she still teach abstinence only or does she she actually tell them? She tries to come from a place of teaching self-love first. Mm -hmm. And if so, if someone comes to her and with a problem, she's going to give them frank advice. So I don't think, I think that having, having all sides- is important. We need to be able to respect someone who, let's say, has a Muslim background or is um, Orthodox Jewish. And where, how, how did they learn about sex? How do we get these ideas? Because I think we're all capable of hopefully of evolving and questioning our own ideas, our own paradigm and where, where they've come from. And if we want, if we want to change the paradigm, we have to be willing to look at our own, um, you know, judgments on people who come from a different background than I think us you, or come from a different ideology. I think you point out a really interesting paradigm in like the activism and education community because I think some people would say, don't even talk or give a platform to folks that you disagree with. Um, and other folks like yourself would say like, no, we have to include this in the conversation and sometimes work within the fucked up culture, the culture we don't agree with in order to make progress as opposed to just being like, I don't agree with you, you're canceled. Because then we don't reach, let's say, those teenage kids that are coming from that background mm-hmm. that are so yes. desperate to have an outlet because they just feel like they'd have, they feel unwelcomed. And so this they, is like not, not, I'm not saying something like, you know, there's a lot of conversation around like letting conservative pundits speak on, on campuses across America. And this is, I feel like a separate, a separate issue. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to give voice to Ann Coulter, but, um, <laughs> I do think, I do think it's really important, especially when we talk about sexuality to be conscious of that spirituality and religion are ways in which we learn from a very early age about sex. And it's not our fault if we were raised from the moment, you know, if we're born into something and this is how we're conditioned. Like I would want someone who's been, who has never had an orgasm and they've been raised in this certain way. I'd want them to feel like they have an outlet to learn. Yeah. And And to be able to ask their like, quote unquote stupid or whatever ignorant questions and so is that without attacking them the other thing there's no such thing as a stupid question i think we also shame i think we shame virgins in our culture i think we shame people who don't feel like they i mean let's talk about the transactional nature of sex in today's landscape like not everybody wants to approach sexuality that way yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely we need yeah i think we need to be open I, I completely agree with you. Actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bachelor franchise at all. Um, but <laughs> How could it be avoided? <laughs> so we actually had Ashley I, who was kind of the scarlet virgin uh, from the series on the podcast to talk about what it's like to be so virgin shamed in the public eye. It's, yeah, you can't win if you, you suck, you can't if you win. have too much sex and you are terrible if you don't have enough sex. Yeah, it's, it's, it's galling. Um, I'm curious, so you talk about like the people that you're trying to reach. So I want to know your platform, The Sex Ed, like, who's its intended audience? The, se- the Sex Ed, which is thesexed.com is a intersectional platform for information and resources about sex education. And we're in beta mode right now. So there's a lot more to come. I'd say our target demographic is 18 to 45. We really have a lot of different types of users. We have a lot of people who are 
sex workers and coming from a more educated place about their own sexuality who yeah. would, let's say, shop, shop at a sex store. And then we have a lot of people who are just for the first time exploring their sexuality who may have never had an orgasm or mm-hmm. have only had clitoral orgasms or... Um, you know, we just did a big piece on prostate pleasure. Yeah, it's amazing. We're also, we're also <laughs> trying to, we want to include um, heterosexual men in the dialogue because I don't feel that they have a lot of spaces to join in this conversation. That's and true. again, if we're going to change the paradigm, we got to include them because they're still in hold positions of power. They're still yes. the and they're still doing, And they're still doing some fucking. Yeah, and I like, want, I I want the hetero of- guys I hook up with to be able to perform <laughs> well. Well, more of it than just performing well. And I like, want I think evolved it, I think, men. Yes, I want evolved, evolved men. men, and I think that most men do feel like they got their sex education from porn and are act. And the older they are, the more actively they are trying to undo that, like once they actually start fucking real humans. But when so many of their formative years are spent masturbating to pornography, and I think porn is great, and I'm not trying to shit on porn As at all. entertainment. As entertainment, as fantasy, as whatever helps get you off. But I do think, and I mean, and this is not just my feeling, there's research on this that shows that a lot of people feel like what they know about sex and get their real sex ed from porn. And I think there is a lot of unpacking to do with that. Um, And I think that's so great. We have um, a sexological body worker who came on the podcast recently, and she teaches a class called Sex Education for Grown-Ass People. Um, And it sounds really in in tandem with what uh, you're trying to do. Yeah, I want to I want to circle back around because we kind of just touched on it again in, in this conversation. Um, but earlier we were talking about going back to um, sex and mindfulness and sex and meditation. Oh, yeah. And then you recently mentioned like spirituality or how we were raised in terms of religion and sex. And so I was really curious about how the intersection of that looks in your life, like spirituality, meditation, and sex practice. Well, I think that one of the biggest game-changing techniques I've learned in the last few years was how to orgasm breathe, um, is how to achieve orgasm on my own with hands-free, no toys, just through breath. Yes, Um, tell us more. (laughs) I've been particularly interested in, in, in Tantra and in sacred sex for, you know, and, and, and really getting into that in my personal life. And, you know, if we're going to talk about um, evolved evolved partners, um, I think it's first comes from a place of a lot of, you have to have a lot of breath control. You obviously need to practice your kegels. Um, and I think now. that having having like a grounded meditation practice and, and becoming one with yourself before you approach a sex act with another person is really, it can, it can take that, not only your orgasm solo, but your orgasm with another person to like the next level for me personally. How does the breath orgasm feel different than different kinds of orgasms? And how do you do it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's see. I wonder if we could do it um, without a visual. I could probably teach you in yes. this conversation. Yes. We're ready. I'm, we're at the so, edges of our seat and my lungs are ready. <laughs> okay, so... Um, are you familiar with the chakra system? Yes. At all? A little. Let's go through it okay, for so our you, listeners. Okay. So your root chakra is at the base of the perineum. Um, and then your sacral chakra, which is se- your sexuality, is around your genital organs. Your solar plexus um, is your stomach. Your heart chakra is your heart. Okay. Your throat chakra is your throat. 
um, your third eye is in the center of your forehead and your crown is at the top of your head. So Mm -hmm. as I'm explaining this breath to you, you want to imagine that that breath is traveling from your root chakra all the way up to your crown and then And then back down through your root. And the breath is done in conjunction with the squeezing of your pelvic floor muscles. Oh my God, I was already doing that. It's so funny, I was already doing that as soon as you said that. That's what I was doing. I was like, oh shit. So uh, if your listeners don't know what PC muscles are, everyone has them regardless of your gender. And um, it is the muscles that make your penis bounce. It's the muscles that you contract when you're trying to stop the flow of urine. and it, and it really helps to be practicing them as, you know, as often as you can, because it does assist in having better orgasms in general, but also preventing incontinence as we age. So the breath is taken as though you're sucking in through a straw. And at the, at the beginning of the breath, you're going to start squeezing your kegel. So it's a little bit like... And that breath traveling and I'm still squeezing my kegel and imagine I'm breathing. I'm traveling up through my chakras to my crown, still squeezing the kegels and then a slow, slow, slow exhale, still squeezing, still squeezing all the way to the bottom. And then at the very end, when you have that last breath out, then you let it go. And... Oh if my god! I that, could totally see how you could come from that. Yeah, you could feel. You feel. You should. You could feel a little tingly, maybe. Yeah, if you do wait it more like than a six little, times Liz. in a row. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you take yourself on a date tonight and you practice that breathing technique, um, you know, I it didn't take me long because I have a strong meditation and yoga practice. Yeah. I was just like, oh my god! If I had learned this when I was thirteen years old, this is what they should be teaching in schools. <laughs> This is what they should be teaching. I mean, if I was designing the curriculum, this is where we'd start. Liz, I've been doing it since you started talking. It feels so good. (laughs) But also, imagine if you integrated abstinence-only education with orgasm breathing. Yeah, like if you truly felt that, like, abstinence-only education was the way to go, then, like, that would be a good way to circumvent, like, shame around masturbation. Exactly. Yeah, you don't even have to call it orgasm breathing. We could call it... Feel good breathing. Love. Gina love. Yeah. (laughs) Gina love. I've got a funny feeling in my vagina. Yeah, speed bumps. We can call it speed bumps. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're going to be taking ourselves on a date later. Yeah. Yeah, light light some candles, burn some incense, some Al Green. As we start to have to wrap up soon, um, there's a question I wanted to ask you just about... um, stigma and things. And I think one article that we read about, you had this awesome quote that said something like, um, you were someone who had a very strong idea about feminism, but wanted to wear pink glitter corsets and didn't feel that that took away from having brains. And I feel like there is this stigma about people or I guess women in general um, who are interested in beauty and glamour and that maybe they're not also smart and capable. Um, And I just wondered what, why you thought there is this stigma about that. I mean, I definitely feel that I started a professional career when I was, I was still a teenager. I was working for corporations with men who were at least, at least twice my age. And I definitely felt at that age, this desire to downplay my sexuality and femininity through not my femininity, but my sexuality through the way I dressed, Mm -hmm. um, until actually it was through, um, the women I interviewed for my burlesque book and film who were burlesque queens of the thirties and forties, they would just 
constantly lecture me on how much power there what I had via my sexuality and how I should be using it in business. And they would say, listen, it's not like your tits are not, it's not like they're not going to be looking at your tits in the conference room. So why don't you start to play with the, the your own confidence about your body? So, you know, then I started going into conference rooms and I would be wearing like a pink bra with marabou feathers hanging between my cleavage and no one could see it except for me but it gave me like a like an extra boost of confidence um Mm -hmm. i wonder how we can continue to use our sexuality in an empowered way not that like using it in all ways can't be empowering but like you were saying in a work setting and especially among like the you know the me too time and that movement um not wanting to encourage that people have to do sexual things to get ahead. And at the same time, some of us like using it and I like think and feel empowered. Yeah. I think it's like when I say using it in an empowered way, it's not necessarily like I'm overtly using my sexuality against mm. man A to get um, you know, more money out of him. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a quiet sense of confidence I have in being empowered by my own sexuality before I even walk into that room. Mm. It's just like, um, and that, using, then you just like, exude being, confidence in other areas of your life. Yeah. In the same way that I would walk into that room and, and be empowered by my, by my intelligence. Yeah. You know, it's just another aspect, um, that I have a one, another of my assets that allows me to shine. Yeah, yeah you're because, an asset. <laughs> I think that's just says that like by depriving, especially uh, by depriving young people of holistic, inclusive sex education, that we're also depriving them of being confident and capable people in the world. For sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think that when we like strive to like hide our sexuality, we are in a certain sense... Uh, not necessarily acknowledging, but definitely catering to this notion that like female sexuality is dangerous and must be restrained. Have people thought you were not smart or capable either because you are into glamour and burlesque or because of just the family that you come from? Like they thought you were just like, I don't know, a privileged person who could didn't have to be smart. Um, I think no one who knows me, who's ever worked with me thinks that. Um, and I think that at a certain point in your life, you have to just say fuck it to people who judge you because I, there's nothing I can do about it. I was born into the family I was born into. My dad actually didn't even see the film and my first film until I sold it to HBO. And of course people assumed, oh, it must've been so easy. Mm. Oh my God. My, my dad was, I had a job since I was like 11. Me my brother and I were recycling and at the dump every Saturday to get money before Planned Parenthood. My dad was very, very strict about stuff like that. I think mm. because he didn't want us to, he didn't want to raise kids who had that, yeah. you know, that sense of entitlement. So what can I do? I can't change everyone's mind. You know, everyone has their own story. Yeah. All I can do is just, you know, walk in my own path and, you know, try to do things with integrity and, check myself. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think I've, I think, I think my work speaks for itself at this point. Oh yes, it it does. It really does. And I also really like your style of writing. I was, uh, watching your, your films and I don't know, I think, I think your style is quite interesting. Um, thank you. That's pretty cool. Well, we have what it's worth. There's like so much more gold. It's worth its waiting. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more that we wish we could talk to you about, but 
for more information on the the books you've re- written and the films you've done, yeah, what's the I easiest way? I just want to say way? one thing. Oh, we, yeah. we, you mentioned your book, Sporting Guide, a few times. For listeners who don't know what that is, it's really cool. So Sporting Guide was originally, it originally existed for like cities and whenever, and it was the guide to all the brothels of the city, basically. And Liz wrote this uh, historical fiction narrative based on, or kind of trying to be a sporting guide of Los Angeles in 1897. Which and is it's so cool. such a fucking brilliant, like, uh, literary device, but also just is really fucking cool. Oh, wait, yeah, just to give a highlight and to, like, tease people a little bit because they should read the full book, is there, like, an area of town or one specific location that you would not have expected some sort of cool sex thing happened in? Well, what's really cool is that I published about 110 images and ephemera in the book that have never been seen from academic archives, and those include maps, maps of downtown LA and Alameda Street region, and actually the it's listed on the maps, and they're published in the book House of Ill Fame. So there's just rows and rows where it's House of Ill Fame, House of Ill Fame. So these were actually on the maps. Oh my god, I love it. I love, I love it. I love that they're on the maps, and I love that you're bringing those maps up again for contemporary culture to like acknowledge that like sex has existed, will always exist, and and founded a lot of our culture. Founded a lot of our culture, and like protect sex workers (laughs) because they've always been around and they always will be. So that was pretty rad. Exactly. So for all fans, profession. Yeah. So for all of our fans who are thirsty to follow all the cool work you're doing personally and with the sex ed, how can they do that? Um, well, they can follow me on Instagram. I'm Goldilocks because I've gotten kicked off a few times um, of, of Instagram for posting adult content. They can follow the sex ed <laughs> on Instagram, which is at the sex ed, or go to the site, thesexed.com, and sign up. Um, we have a weekly newsletter. And Ooh, um, I want that newsletter. You can, check out, you can check out my books, Pretty Things, The Last Generation of American Burlesque Queens, and Sporting Guide. And uh, yeah, I have a website, lgoldwinfilms.com, that has all my short films. Um, They're on pretty there cool. As well. You should check them out. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And again, if you want to check out what we're doing at Sluts and Scholars, you can find us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and we love to hear your questions and wonderings at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Good